This is exactly right. I'm Kate Winkler Dawson. I'm a journalist who's spent the last 25 years writing about true crime. And I'm Paul Holes, a retired cold case investigator who's worked some of America's most complicated cases and solved them. Each week, I present Paul with one of history's most compelling true crimes. And I weigh in using modern forensic techniques to bring new insights to old mysteries. Together, using our individual expertise, we're examining historical true crime cases through a 21st century lens. Some are solved, and some are cold. Very cold. This is Buried Bones. Hey, Paul. Hey, Kate. How are you? I'm fine. I am experiencing birthday hangover, but not my birthday. <laughs> my oh. kid's birthday. My my birthdays are usually my birthdays three days after Christmas. So we've talked about that before. My birthdays are pretty chill, but my kids' birthdays, my goodness, it just feels like we're having celebration after celebration, and it's like carte blanche for them to do whatever they want. I don't know. Are, were you really able to let your kids do whatever they wanted on their birthdays, or were you sort of saying, okay, we're going to get this done, and that's it, and move on? <laughs> No, yeah, I, I wouldn't say anything they wanted, but of course, you know, as they when they were younger, you know, it's kind of a big deal, you know, for younger mm-hmm. kids. Birthday celebrations are are important, and uh, so of course there was a variety of different activities that would be done over the years for the kids. And as they've gotten older, we just kind of have pulled back, and now they would probably rather be out with their friends for their birthday or have their friends over than have the parents have to do some sort of activity for them. So we're going to transition and go very, very modern for us, 1930s to 1950s. Oh, wow. (laughs) I know. It's amazing. (laughs) It's amazing. And we're going to go to Atlanta, Georgia, and we are going to talk about someone who was a serial killer, a woman with at least 10 victims. She is virtually unknown in history. And it's probably because both she and the victims were black. So it's interesting to talk about somebody like a Samuel Little or some of these folks who, you know, you would think would be compared to an Edmund Kemper or a Ted Bundy or a Dennis Rader. But I'm going to be interested in talking to you about why somebody would not be famous. What is the storyline that the media or the audience picks up on that turns somebody from a craven killer who is a serial killer into this level of infamy that we're seeing in a Jeffrey Dahmer or a Ted Bundy? Because, you know, these are terrible crimes, but they did not catch the media's attention, even the black media's attention. Yeah, yeah. And it's still a bad, bad series of crimes. So let's go ahead and set the scene. So there's some thematic overlap 
between this story and a story that I told you kind of a long time ago. Do you remember the Henri Landreau story, who was the Bluebeard from France? Do you remember anything about that story? I know we talk a lot about <laughs> a lot. There's a lot of killers in there in our list. Do you remember yeah, the yeah. Bluebeard? I I do remember talking about that. A lot of the details are a little fuzzy, which is pretty typical for me after, you know, know, you're blocking them out. Hundreds, yeah, hundreds of of different cases. But yes, I I remember that that episode for a little bit. So Landrieu would draw women in using kind of the Lonely Hearts ads. He was killing people during, I think, World War I. So there were a lot of single women out there. And, you know, he would murder them. He would draw them in and marry them and murder them. This person that we're going to talk about is not stopping with the people that she's married to. She's expanding to a lot of different family members. And I'm not going to dance around who it is. It's our main character. And what I want to know from you as we kind of go through this is, number one, what is she thinking? You know, I still don't quite understand the idea of killing everybody around you, not for sexual pleasure, but for money or for other reasons. And also, How does someone get away with it and fly under the radar? You know, I guess it's the sort of the persona of the person and where you fall under in the list of infamy of serial killers. Okay. This story is two decades, starting in the late 30s until the early 1950s in Atlanta, Georgia. Atlanta is getting the reputation for being the cradle of the civil rights movement at this point. So there is a lot of upheaval. There is a lot of demand from people of color for equal rights. And so the city is really in a big push-pull at this point. And I think one of the things that we've talked about in the past is when we talk about people of color, and it might not be just people who are black, but, you know, it could be indigenous, it could be people of Asian descent, whomever we're talking about. When we talk about them in history, there is often not as much information as we want because law enforcement doesn't care as much in history about these victims. And sometimes, in this case, I'm not sure they care that much about the killer. So you might want more information about our killer than I might have. And it's just because, you know, we have a history in our country of ignoring underrepresented people, even if they are convicted killers. And that's what's happening here. Okay, so I just wanted to get you ready for that. (laughs) I'm hey, I'm I'm geared up. Let's hear it. Okay, here we go. So the woman's name that we're going to talk about today is Roberta Elder. And she was born around 1909. She spends most of her time in Watkinsville, Georgia, and then she moves on to Atlanta. We don't know much about her background, how she grew up. Again, underrepresented people, underreported is kind of what I usually say. But as a young adult, Roberta gets into a relationship with a man whose last name is Thurmond. And we don't know a lot about them, except that there is a son that's named James. And he goes by Willie, so I'm just going to call him Willie from now on. And he becomes important later on. There's also two daughters, Willie May and Lizzie May. And both daughters die in infancy, both of these little girls. And one is two weeks old, one is one week old. And this is where details about Roberta get sketchy. So there's no proof that she killed these children. 
but there is an insinuation because when it comes out later on that she is a serial killer within acquaintances and family members, and I know that is not our traditional definition of a serial killer, but over two decades, she murders a lot of people. When it comes out that she is this killer, we began looking back at all the people who died in her family, and they sort of start with these two little girls. But we don't know the circumstances of their death. We don't have enough information because at the time it was just considered children who had just been born and gotten sick and died. So that would have flown under the radar. Would that have flown under the radar now? Would it have been considered unusual for a child to die shortly after childbirth now? Or would that sound alarm bells to police investigators now? Well, today, you know, of course, there's so much more ability to determine the cause of death. And if there is anything that is suspicious about it, this is the role of both, you know, the medical professionals. If these children are, are brought in and, and they're in some sort of medical emergency, if they die, uh, then now you have in uh, many jurisdictions, you have uh, death investigators that are responding out to the death scene. They're documenting it. They are trained on, you know, what to look for. That's anything suspicious. If they see anything suspicious, even if it's like, well, I'm not sure, they need to be pulling out homicide investigators. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, you hope that you have, you know, very highly trained forensic pathologists that can recognize there is uh, something suspicious about why this child died and possibly could even determine this is a homicide, you know. So I think it's much more difficult to get away with killing your child and making it look like it was due to some sort of natural cause or, you know, exposure to, you know, whether it be a toxin or pathogen of some sort. I think the medical and death investigation process is, you know, they're, they're looking for that. Yeah. And in the 1930s, I'm not sure how much they would have been looking unless it just seemed like very obvious signs. There was nothing obvious about the death of these two little girls. And so we could just assume that they died of natural causes. But based on her history, as we'll find out, I don't know. I think you keep it on the back burner for now. So by the mid-1930s, when she would have been maybe in her 20s, mid-20s, she's no longer with this guy, Mr. Thurmond, who's the father of her children. We don't know why. They might have divorced or maybe he died. We're not sure. She's not a suspect officially with anything right now. But in 1938, Roberta is about 30 years old, and she gets into a relationship with a guy named John Woodward. So some people describe him as just a friend, but others say this is her common-law husband. We don't know for sure, but they did live together in Atlanta. And Roberta's teenage son, who's 13, Willie, is living with them too. So in this relationship, not long after they started it, John Woodward ends up dying. And there's not a lot of information of what he dies of, but I think we're going to find out later on that these people all tended to have sort of the same symptoms. But he's young, he's 36 years old, and he's died in what's reported as a mysterious illness. But we're not even sure he's been given an appropriate cause of death. So at 36 in 1938, 
they could have been many things. It could have been the flu. It could have been things that killed him now. But, you know, right now, we just know that there's a man in his mid-30s who's been living with this woman for not very long and her teenage son, and he is now dead. And how did they meet? Did they just run across each other, or is she answering to ads, you know, that people are putting out? You know, what what's the uh, victimology like here? I think they just knew each other from the neighborhood, is what I gather. Okay. So I don't think she's putting out ads or anything like that. You know, it's Atlanta. It's a big city in the 1930s. There are very large black sections of Atlanta, sections of Atlanta where black people would live. So I think this is probably just an acquaintance situation where they meet. He does not seem to have any prior health concerns, and he's 36, but, you know, no alarm bells are sounding except one year later, I see an alarm bell that I don't think anybody else sees, when something happens in Roberta's home again. So she has a teenage son named Willie, and he passes away at 13 years old. So this is about a year later. So this 36-year-old man dies in a mysterious way, but the police are not called. So Willie dies, who's 13, and on the death certificate, his cause of death is determined to be malnutrition and respiratory trouble. So what is that, malnutrition and respiratory trouble? Well, he's he's a victim of child abuse. He is being, you know, she's withholding um, food from him. And, you know, whether or not the respiratory issues are a result of the malnutrition or there's something else going on, I couldn't say. You know, that's Mm -hmm. why autopsies are conducted in part is to get those types of answers. But right now, the malnutrition should be a huge red flag is why can she not provide food to her child. It says malnutrition. Is there any way that there is some type of disease that would mimic malnutrition? I mean, maybe if you have stomach problems for two or three weeks, or is it really clear when it's malnutrition from child abuse? I would definitely be deferring to um, a pathologist, medical professional, but the pathologist is listing the cause of death as malnutrition. Yeah. And a pathologist would recognize if that malnutrition was a result of a a disease state or was a result of a lack of food. And of course, there would be other indicators within the house in terms of what is going on. This this is a 13-year-old boy. Right. You know, it's not a two-year-old. Is there food in the house? Has the boy been eating? You know, is is there other symptoms that have been on display for a period of time where now this 13-year-old boy is becoming frail as a result of not being able to ingest food or digest it properly? But that's where the pathologist weighs in, you know. But right now, when I hear cause of death as malnutrition, you know, my my immediate thought is, is there's a criminal act happening that parent isn't taking care of of her child and let it linger so long that that child died. Now, maybe there was some sort of disease state, but why isn't she acting on it earlier to prevent this child's death? 
And I'm curious about whether or not this child abuse malnutrition started before the husband died, John, because, you know, you've got John dying in 1938, and then Willie, the son, dies a year later. So I wonder if as soon as John is dead, this is when the malnutrition part starts. But I'm still concerned. I don't know what the respiratory trouble would be. What are they seeing? Are they seeing something in his lungs during an autopsy to make it important enough to put on their death certificate? Yeah. No, for sure. Isn't it like a strange combo? It seems like a weird combo to have on a death certificate. It is. You know, but that's, again, where I think the the medical professionals have to weigh in on could the state of the malnutrition be the primary cause of death and the respiratory issue being sort of a side symptom of the malnutrition. Hmm. What exactly is this respiratory issue that's going on? Because there can be many different types of respiratory issues. uh, And maybe that is a clue as to what might be the underlying cause You know, like, let's say she's poisoning her child, and that poisoning Mm -hmm. aspect is causing that child to exhibit the malnutrition, but also that poisoning is potentially manifesting as a, uh, how do I want to say it, that this respiratory thing may be one of those types of symptoms from this toxin being in in the child's body. Uh, So right now, I don't know. You know, this autopsy cause of death is, is too generic to say for sure what is going on. It's just the people looking at her. Does she look like she's healthy, like she's getting adequate food and her child is dying of malnutrition? That's a problem. Well, it's not sounding any alarms with the authorities at all because nothing changes for Roberta. She ends up about two or three years later remarrying She marries a guy named James Garfield Crane, and James Garfield Crane has a grandson who's named uh, Jimmy Lee Crane, and he is two years old. Both of them die in less than two years after they've been married. Both James and Jimmy, the grandson, die, and both causes of death are unclear from the death certificates. So you've got now, every time somebody lives with her, they end up dying and nobody can really trace what's happening with these people. And she's generally living in the same jurisdiction, right? She is. I don't think she's moving, actually. I think this all might be the same house and people keep moving in with her. And there's family, friends that live, you know, with her, around her. There's, you know, the same neighbors. You know, it's it's one thing if you have... You know, like from the law enforcement side, you know, law enforcement isn't necessarily tracking back then, tracking this type of thing. Nowadays, of course, it's a we're responding out. We've got a death out at this location. You know, what previous call outs have we had at this location? Oh, we've been out there three times before because other people have been found dead inside this house. Mm -hmm. There'd be alarm bells going off if all these uh, deceased individuals are flowing through the coroner's office. You know, there would be alarm bells going off. So there is definitely a a deficit in terms of not only from the authorities, but even just the people in her social circles. If this is not causing somebody to go, there's a problem going on here and actually calling up the uh, law enforcement agency and saying there you need to look at this. You're going to keep saying that for a while, I'm afraid. 
So there's a little girl named Gloria Evans. She's three. And this is Roberta's cousin. She dies the year after Roberta's new husband and the husband's two-year-old grandson dies. Now, we have a tiny bit more information. Gloria, the coroner says, died of acute gastroenteritis caused by food poisoning. So that just sounds like that could have been an arsenic, maybe? What do you think? So if she's calling it food poisoning, to me that sounds like it most likely is going to be like a bacterial food poisoning. Do people die from food poisoning? Is that a thing in the 1940s? Would that have really happened? It happens today. A three-year-old would, though? Well, your, your younger children and your more elderly are more susceptible to some of these more severe forms of food poisoning. I will tell you... That what 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 year was that? Two four, 2014, 2015, I came down with uh, E. coli O one five seven. Oof! And I will tell you, and, and I'm not going to go into graphic detail. This was when the Ebola outbreak was going on in Africa, and so when I showed mm-hmm. up with severe symptoms, the hospital quarantined me, thinking I potentially could have been exposed to Ebola. Um, And I will tell you that, yeah, a frail person going through what I went through, it most certainly possibly could kill them. So there are some serious pathogens out there that can be fatal. So it'd be interesting to see, was this truly food poisoning or did the pathologist just miss diagnose this gastroenteritis as being, you know, this this inflammation of the digestive system, if you will. And maybe Roberta just said, yeah, he ate something and got sick, you know, and they got influenced by that. But could this gastroenteritis be a result of being exposed to maybe a poison? Well, let me reveal something to you before we move forward with many other victims. So Roberta is, not surprisingly, I'm sure, taking out life insurance policies on all of these people, essentially. Not everybody, but pretty much all of them, ranging from $50 to $550, which would have been, you know, in the thousands on many of these family members. So what she would do is take out the policy a year before they died, and then she would kill them, and she would, of course, be the beneficiary. So I just wanted you to keep that in mind, because I'm sure you wanted to know what a motive was, but I, I would have guessed, I'm sure you would have guessed that money was the motive, obviously. Yes. But there are so many more. We left off with the three-year-old girl who died of gastroenteritis. And a year later, so remember we go by years here, a year later, Roberta's mother dies. Same way. I mean, we've talked about people who have killed family members, but this is next level. It's like anybody who comes into her household. She's obviously going after people she has access to. And... You know, she's either gaining access through developing relationships with men mm-hmm. or she's gaining access, you know, to family members. In many ways, this is not a very sophisticated offender. This is just somebody who is living in an environment 
in which she can get away with this. And as she gets away with these crimes, it just emboldens her to keep going. Well, one of the things that I talk about in my books is killers and the way that they look. So, you know, Edward Ruloff, which was from my book, All That Is Wicked, looked like a country gentleman. He spoke eloquently. He was well-educated, self-educated, but well-educated. And he did not look like an untrustworthy person. And this is a time period when a man's handshake is plenty for people. Mm -hmm. And this does spill over, of course, into the 20th century. So Roberta, I'm showing you a picture of her now, lovely looking woman. I mean, and I'll show you one a little bit further down where you can sort of see a bigger picture of her. But this is not someone at all you would target and say, boy, she really looks you know, suspicious in any way. She looks sort of like an older, older mother or a grandmother, a young grandmother. This would throw me off completely if I were an investigator. And I would just think in the 1950s, a male investigator would look at this woman and say, no way, no way this is happening. Right. I mean, she, yeah, she just looks like a pleasant older lady. But this is where these killers, these serial predators, they don't always look like the boogeyman oh, no. or the boogie woman, right? Yeah. Um, and, and that's where people can get lured into, we all are biased in terms of judging somebody else. And if you have somebody that looks pleasant, looks attractive and acts a certain way, your defenses go down. Mm -hmm. You know, you kind of become more trusting of that person. And that's where some of these killers, you know, and notably somebody like a Ted Bundy, who was considered to be a physically attractive man, well, he could take advantage of that physical attribute to put his victims at a kind of a lower sense of security in order for him to be able to get closer to the victims. You know, and, and that's just reality. There are some of these offenders that by any measure of, of physical characteristics look like the boogeyman. But, you know... These offenders will capitalize on their physical attributes in order to be able to further victimize. Well, she is unassuming with two lines underneath it. She seems unassuming to me. Not surprisingly, her mother dies, and a few years later, she meets another man. He is a reverend and a very respected member of the community. His name is William Elder Sr., and this is how she ends up with her last name, Roberta Elder. So they are married, and she sort of inherits five stepchildren. They are like 15 and 9 and, uh, you know, other various ages. And they're all living together in Atlanta. Yeah, this isn't good. I know. The Reverend Elder had just lost his wife the year before to influenza. And not to Roberta. <laughs> I think this was a legitimate case of flu. And they get married less than a year later. This doesn't surprise me, of course, at all. That would have been pretty typical of a man, especially one with kids, you know, who needed a maternal figure in the house would have done. So when she joins the house, we very quickly, probably within about, looks like to me, about six months, two of the kids die, the nine-year-old and the 15-year-old. Now, this is where I'm confused. Their causes of death are listed as pneumonia. 
Is it just me, or if she is using the same thing to kill all of these people, it feels like the symptoms are all over the place. I mean, I know we talked about malnutrition, but food poisoning, pneumonia, respiratory problems. I don't know what's going on. Is there one thing that can mimic all different types of diseases? Well, I don't know about that. You know, but when you mentioned pneumonia, I went back to, you know, the child that had the respiratory contribution to cause of death, mm-hmm. you know, and so that may be something that would indicate there was something similar done to these children. She could be multimodal in terms of what she's doing. You know, it varies from victim to victim. Or maybe she is using something that does cause different types of symptoms in different people, because we all have different ways that we react. Our bodies, we're just different, you know? And so the symptoms that one person may have when exposed to a substance could be different than symptoms that another person would exhibit. Or they're dying at different stages within the the development of what ultimately causes the death. Well, I'm going to tell you a little story inside this story, and maybe it'll give us some clarity on how the first child died, the one who was described as who died from malnutrition with respiratory problems. So the reverend, not surprisingly, gets sick, probably about a year after they're married. His children, two of his kids have died, and now he feels very sick after eating a lunch of bananas and cheese at his job. He works at a construction site. So according to a journalist named William Falks, who covered the case for the black newspaper, the Pittsburgh Courier, he said that the reverend started vomiting and sweating His stomach was real sick, okay? So before you comment on that, let me tell you this. Roberta calls the doctor. The doctor gives some medicine, and Roberta says, what should I do? And and the doctor says, give him the medicine. If things get worse, call me back. So she didn't. She waits until he is basically on death's door, calls the doctor, and then the reverend passes away on August 21st, 1952. Yeah. So here's the description of his body, okay? They at first thought that this was food poisoning, which, of course, we've heard of before. That's what she said. She said, I think he got sick from bad bananas or something. But here's how the coroner described his body. The reverend's body is described as emaciated and reportedly had multiple ruddy sores on it And this is what makes his personal doctor suspicious. So emaciated again, are we now thinking there's a poison that actually caused over time, maybe slow poisoning that caused this in the sun, Willie, also? Yes, I I think you're looking at chronic exposure to something. (sighs) And the, the sores on his body, there's something that's tickling the back of my brain about what that might have caused that. But right now I'm... I'm drawing a blank, you know, but of course, there's your common poisons that are, are being employed, such as your arsenics and your strychnines, you know, and, and maybe there's something going on there. But th- there's no question this appears to be chronic oral ingestion of some sort of toxin. You know, we talked about this in another case where the skin was showing kind of rash and it turned out to be arsenic and it was like a weird infection. And I think that what might be happening here, whatever it is, finally, 
somebody thinks something is wrong with this family, and his doctor really becomes alarmed because then he remembers there are all of these other sudden deaths at the home. He's thinking that this is really somebody's in danger here. So he asks for a complete autopsy to be performed on the reverend. He said that pneumonia and arsenic poisoning can present similar symptoms. So the coroner decided, well, it says pathologist here. I guess, yes, there were pathologists in the 50s. So Mm -hmm. pathologists decided to look for traces of arsenic specifically. So this general practitioner said, I know that this can seem like arsenic poisoning. I need you to test for it. And so a toxicologist came back and said, we found that he was simply loaded with the poison arsenic. Mm. And of course, Roberta Elder is the number one suspect here. Yeah, so it's just now that somebody's getting suspicious, but it's sort of like, oh, you have, I don't know how many she had killed up to this point, but you know, eight dead and then now you got nine dead and now you get suspicious you know it seems like it's a little late in the ball game right absolutely i mean okay so if i count these up we've got the second husband john woodward then we've got the teenage son willie then we've got her third husband and his little grandson so that's i think we're up to four then we've got the three-year-old cousin then we've got the mom so now we're up to six Then you've got William Elder's, the Reverend's two kids, so that's eight. Then you've got William Elder, that's nine. Yeah. Okay, so she comes in front of the coroner's jury and denies any of this. She said, I took care of my husband really well. I didn't do anything. But then the doctor testified and said, not only did Roberta avoid contacting me when my patient was dying, He also said that the reverends, and here's the quote, skin had slipped and there were peculiar skin discolorations and sores on his body. Now, that's not abuse, right? Because I guess now I'm alarmed about the emaciated comment and these weird sores, but I guess we are attributing that to arsenic, right? Yeah, unless, what, was he bedridden for a period of time? Do do we potentially have some ulcerated sores as a result of not being moved around? Maybe. I mean, if this is long term, boy, you would think so, but but I don't know. So now Roberta's stepchildren are testifying. She has a stepdaughter named Dorothy, and she said she once became very ill after Roberta gave her a dose of milk of magnesia, which is used medicinally for like heartburn and upset stomachs and constipation. And a sister, Viola, backs that story up by saying that she had been sick and even vomited after Roberta gave her some medicine, which also was probably milk of magnesia. And then another one of the reverend's kids said he was suffering from the illness twice following meals. So he stopped eating over there. He was like, forget this. I'm not eating her food anymore. He said, I thought that Roberta was poisoning people. So now we're at a point where I think she's getting sloppy. She seems to be trying to kill everyone in sight. Is she not scared of being caught or is she that blinded? And I don't know if this is greed anymore. This just seems like haphazard at this point. It's like anybody who's in my house, I'm going to kill for insurance money. Well, as she got away with these homicides, 
that's where you know offenders do they get overly confident and they often start trying to make it easier to commit these crimes they get lax that overconfidence oftentimes will get them caught i kind of wonder you know when the reverend's wife died and he had these five kids yeah. did she target him cuz all of a sudden she's looking at this going Kaching, mm-hmm. right? Did she take out life insurance policies on him and five kids? Now she has access to six people in one foul swoop. Yeah. One of whom makes money. So she's not killing him first. She's got to get rid of the kid. You don't want to be stuck with all these kids. Yeah. So she's getting rid of the kids first and then him. But it didn't work with a couple of them. And, you know, in terms of is this purely financially motivated or is there an aspect to her that compels her to want to kill? Yeah. Right. You know, this Munchausen type of syndrome that that uh, we've talked about before. It is interesting, but just the sheer volume of people that are so close to her within a relatively short period of time. It's stunning that this wasn't caught earlier in this series. Me too. And, you know, I don't know what that means. I think it's based on her, the way she looked, the way she carried herself. I also don't know if this was a family that had sort of a lot of reach into the community. The reverend did. So I'm not sure why people didn't sound the alarm. And this is not the 1800s. This is the 1950s where, yeah, there were diseases, but we're we're not talking about like typhoid or the Black Plague. You know, we're, we're talking about stuff that's not dissimilar from what we have now. So they really narrow this down to arsenic-based pesticide, which is a pink powder. Her brother had a farm near Watkinsville, and she would go and visit. Again, I am dumbfounded that people could figure out a way to cover up the taste of what must have been disgusting, arsenic-based pesticide pink powder. And she gets people to eat this or swallow this. Maybe it only takes one time. But boy, she must have had the dosages down pretty well, except for the two that didn't get killed. Well, and that's kind of my guess right there is is that I don't know, you know, how foul arsenic or this arsenic pesticide actually tastes. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are toxins that are, are quite pleasant tasting. You know, ethylene glycol, antifreeze is very sweet tasting, mm-hmm. and that's why it can be mm-hmm. so dangerous to... To kids and and like dogs, if you know, there's some antifreeze that's been spilled on the garage floor. There's a bottle of this shiny, shiny uh, what looks like Gatorade, and it tastes good. So it may have a potency that allows her to dose it at a fairly low level to where it, it's relatively easy to cover the taste up. And I don't think milk of magnesia. I haven't had that in a long time, but I don't remember itself tasting very good. So maybe that is a smart way to mask it also. Sure. You know, I don't know what if it does taste bad. So the toxicologist who worked this case in the 1950s was really impressed with the police. She said that they brought me 52 items for analysis, everything from food to medicine. And she said that at the Georgia Police Academy, they told the officers to always get the contents of the garbage can. And so they did. And one officer brought her a bottle of milk of magnesia to analyze. And of course, it was loaded with arsenic. Here's the problem. Roberta says, I didn't do any of this. And they cannot find one person who saw her 
do anything that indicated she was putting this pink powder into people's food. And there were people who had access to all of this stuff, you know, the food in the kitchen, preparing stuff. They were really having a hard time figuring out how to make this case work because there was no proof that she was the one who did this. Oh. (laughs) Right? Or no, you think this would have been a slam dunk now? Well, there's there's a pattern. There's an obvious pattern, you know. Mm-hmm. This pattern is circumstantial evidence for sure. Yes, you would like to be able to get a witness of seeing her. Yeah, she was dumping rat poison into milk of magnesia. But in poisoning cases, you never get to that kind of observation, right? These these poisoners are doing it in secret and then hiding right. this. You know, that's it's a very tough witness-based case, but circumstances are there. Physical evidence is there. Out of her trash can, there's milk of magnesia that's loaded with arsenic. I think a reasonably competent prosecutor would be able to walk this case, you know, charge it and just walk it in front of the jury and get a conviction without much, much trouble. Well, I'll tell you, they start finding out that she's taken life insurance policies out on everybody. And they exhume the bodies of Fannie Mae and Annie Pearl, the 15-year-old and the 9-year-old. And there are trace amounts of arsenic found in their hair and their skin tissues And the three children who survived, who all say, Dorothy, Viola, and William Jr., all said, we have felt sick in the past, they were all treated for arsenic exposure because she had been slowly poisoning them also. Mm -hmm. It's just really, I mean, this is an unbelievable story. And so, you know, she's collected all this money. Now, you go ahead and tell me what you were going to say, and then I've got some more information about motive. Yeah, you know, the fact that on these exhumed bodies, you know, they're finding the arsenic within the hair. And this is where, you know, working with a good toxicologist, you know, the the thing that comes to my mind is that, you know, of course, like with you, you have long hair. Well, the hair that started growing out of your scalp years ago isn't going to have arsenic in it. Mm -hmm. It's going to be the hair that has been growing since you've had the exposure. So by taking the length of hair and segmenting it from basically scalp towards the end, you can determine how long the person was exposed to arsenic. So this would be something today that I'd be asking a toxicologist, can we do this? Is this true? And if I can show, oh, the children have hair, you know, that's from the distal end, you know, it's been out there from a time frame prior to them moving into the house with Roberta. And then all of a sudden, the hair that's grown out from the scalp after they've moved into the house with Roberta has arsenic in it. Mm-hmm. Now I've got a timeline based on science, based on physical evidence. Well, let me tell you a little bit more about motive. This is really interesting. Roberta was a treasurer for a local chapter of an organization called the Heroines of Jericho, which is a fraternal organization. She was a treasurer, which seems like now, of course, hindsight, it's a bad idea. She was being accused of misplacing a fairly large sum of money in that role of treasurer. And it sounds like that would have been the motive that she was going to have to repay this back And, you know, but she's been doing this for decades. But money is obviously a thing for Roberta. I have not read 
what she spent it on. I have not read about a lavish lifestyle. I don't know what she spent it on, but she was going after money for sure. Yeah, financially motivated. But with the volume of cases, it seems like there may be more than just financial motivation with her. This is where she actually enjoys the process the getting away with the crime, possibly the power that she has over these victims. You know, there may be that psychological gratification she's getting by committing these crimes. But of course, she wants to also get the financial assets. You know, ultimately, she goes on trial. She pleads not guilty. She says, I didn't do any of this. Not surprisingly, she is convicted and sentenced to life in prison. She never, ever admits that she did anything wrong, never, to anybody. And, you know, this is arguably a circumstantial case. I know it's strong circumstantial evidence, but she keeps her mouth shut for the rest of her life. And what's interesting about this story is I think the details are really compelling. I had never heard of this case before. I mean, 10, 9, 10 people? I said at least 10 because... I don't know about the children, the two little kids that she had earlier. You know, we don't know. So why do you think that this case fell under the radar of even the black press to a certain extent? I'm not really sure, like in this particular case, why it didn't get the attention of the public. First, it it may be due to her race and the victim's race. Mm -hmm. Who becomes infamous Mm. as a a serial predator, serial killer, that's driven by the media. Mm. That's not driven by, for example, law enforcement. The media are going to cover cases which is going to have sort of wide appeal. Mm -hmm. And that may be part of it is that the major media in the area didn't think that telling the story of these victims and that the story of Roberta was going to be something that their, it would have been readers, would have uh, really glommed onto. Mm -hmm. It's kind of over the, the decades with the various cases I've been involved with or aware of as to which cases seem to become popular or not, it's fickle. Yeah. There's cases as an example, you know, East Area Rapist, received some public attention during the time that those crimes were being committed, but very quickly was forgotten about. You know, that's why it was such a huge, high-publicity case when all of a sudden Michelle McNamara renames East Area Rapist Golden State Killer, and then everybody's going, what is this? You know, what is this Mm -hmm. huge case that we didn't know about before? You know, I've got cases that I think are just absolutely fascinating cases or the public should know about, and the media just goes, no, not interested. I just don't know. Well, you look at Samuel Little, you know, a prolific serial killer, and I don't see tons of Netflix and Hulu stuff about him. I don't know if I've seen anything, as a matter of fact, about Samuel Little. I'm sorry to interrupt, but this goes towards, well, who are his victims? Right. His victims are out of lower-income, impoverished, not all black, but sex workers. Yeah. And one of the things that, like, what I've seen on the media, you know, like, say, on the TV side, they shy away from telling those stories because the average consumer of true crime 
looks at that victim and says, well, I don't do that work. I don't put myself in that environment. Yep. And they don't relate to that victim. It's just like, how come, you know, when you have all these men in gangs that are being killed, oftentimes it's a single sentence, you know, in the newspaper or on a website about it happening. Well, the people who are reading go, well, I'm not in a gang. That's never going to happen to me. So these victims aren't relatable to the, the, the people who are actually the consumers of the media side. And that's where I'm guessing with Roberta's case and all those victims, the consumers of the media, uh, you know, that's covering or at least aware of that case, the media is going, well, our readership is not going to be interested in this. So we're not going to put it out there. And it's tragic because now this is where you have the, these victims that have just been forgotten. Yep. And then I think you can have an instance where something so bizarre happens that it supersedes that, like a Jeffrey Dahmer which his victims were people of color. They were, you know, people living the the stupidest phrase ever, the alternative lifestyle. And look what happens. The police didn't give a crap about those victims either until we find out what a horrific person Jeffrey Dahmer was and what he did. And then all of a sudden the story is huge and he becomes infamous based on how sick he was. Do you think that's the case? Oh, yeah. No, with, with Dahmer, it, that most certainly was the case. It wasn't, you know, the early reporting was not victim centric. It was the gruesomeness yeah. of the crimes, the cannibalism that he was doing, the ritualistic aspect, trying to create the zombies. You know, it was such an unusual case. But th there wasn't any attention based on, okay, who were his victims? Yeah. Again, this is something that the media drives. And I know there's been some attempt by the media to correct that, but it's still to this day going to be what the media thinks will sell. Yeah. Sorry about that. <laughs> Speaking as someone who's in the media. Sorry, I apologize on behalf of all of us. Well, what a story. And I, I am interested because I feel like Roberta really in some ways might have benefited from her race. It could have been from being black because maybe she was overlooked by white police. I mean, mm -hmm. for a very, very long time, nobody even thought that these were murderers. I mean, to have that many people in your family die. I don't know what happened there, but anyway, it's a fascinating case. I sometimes am baffled by the reaction that the police have, but it's hindsight is twenty twenty. What are you going to do? This is the 1950s, and they're going off of what they believe a killer slash serial killer would look like and act like, and, and she did not fit the bill for them. Yeah, no, somebody dropped the ball along the way. Uh, oh, yeah. There should there should have been some observation of this pattern occurring well before it got up to nine or ten victims. I agree. Well, again, thank you for all the effort in telling this this horrible story, and and uh, you know it's it's good that you brought attention to it. Thank you. I'll see you next week. Sounds good. This has been an Exactly Right production. For our sources and show notes, go to exactlyrightmedia.com slash sources. Our senior producer is Alexis Amorosi. Research by Marin McClashen, Ali Elkin, and Kate Winkler-Dawson. Our mixing engineer is Ben Tolliday. Our theme song is by Tom Breifogel. 
Our artwork is by Vanessa Lilac. Executive produced by Karen Kilgariff, Georgia Hardstark, and Daniel Kramer. You can follow Buried Bones on Instagram and Facebook at Buried Bones Pod. Kate's most recent book, All That is Wicked, a Gilded Age story of murder and the race to decode the criminal mind, is available now. And Paul's best-selling memoir, Unmasked, My Life Solving America's Cold Cases, is also available now. Follow Barry Bones and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show. Visit exactlyrightstore.com to purchase Buried Bones merch.